Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Board Game Shenanigans podcast, where we review the games we've been playing and discuss board game-related topics. My name's Bob. And I'm Natasha. And our shenanigans are cheeky and fun. I slightly hate you for saying that, but that's, yep, (laughs) it is for sure. All right, in today's episode, we are going to be discussing Cascadia, Tiny Towns, Meadow, Lords of Waterdeep, and Natasha's worst game ever played. Yep. And then we're going to be delving into board game jargon. So let's first get into some reviews. Natasha, what do you got? So this week I played Cascadia. It's a puzzle tile drafting and tile laying game featuring the habitats and wildlife of the Pacific Northwest. It's designed by Randy Flynn, published by Flatout Games. In this game, players are building their own terrain area and populating it with wildlife. Players do this by selecting one of the four habitat tiles that are paired with a random animal token. You take the tile and add it to your terrain. There's no rules about the placement of the tile. However, you score your largest habitat one point per tile. Then you place the animal token you had taken with it on one of the habitats that allow that animal. There are five types of habitats in the game, and each tile has one to three animals that can be placed on it. So each player starts off with three hexagonal habitat tiles that are each empty. When you have your turn, you'll grab another tile, add it to your terrain area. So now you have four, and then you take the animal that you've just taken, and you can place it on any one of those four tiles. Throughout the game, you'll always have three empty tiles. Ideally, you want to place habitat tiles to create matching terrain, mostly because you score for your largest area type of habitat at the end of the game, with a bonus if your habitat area is larger than the other players. At the same time, you want to place your wildlife tokens so that you can maximize the number of points scored by each one of them, with the wildlife goals being determined at random by one of the scoring cards for each type of wildlife. So maybe the hawks want to be separated from other hawks while foxes want lots of different animals surrounding them and bears want to be in pairs, for example. What makes this game so great is the simplicity. There are no rules about where you can place your tiles, so you're never stuck. There are rules about where to place your animals, but it's very clear where your animals can go. The game is so simple to learn, but it has so much depth around what combos to select because you want to keep your terrains together but you also want to follow the animal scoring rules so you can score those as well. Yeah, it definitely provides some interesting choices because when you're selecting those tiles, you have four to choose from and then they're corresponding with a animal token. So there's a lot of interesting choice that, choices that you have to make of which terrain tile do I want with, along with which animal token because I want to make sure I'm building those those terrains up, but I also want to make sure I'm scoring my animals, mm-hmm. you know, c- fulfilling those objective cards. Um, yep. So, yeah, it definitely has some good choices in it. It is definitely simplistic at its core. Mm-hmm. I I do like the variable setup with the animal cards because each animal type can score differently, yep. right? You know, just depending. And there's actually a beginner level of scoring. So the animals all score differently, but there's a beginner variant where you, all the animals kind of score the same. You just want to get, you know, uh, pairs or triples of animals together. So that makes it a lot simpler if you're playing with a younger crowd. Um, you don't have to make the, the scoring so complicated with the animals. Yeah, I mean, it's nice because you can introduce it to, you know, kids and everything like that to mm-hmm. get them acclimated to that kind of style game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or somebody who just doesn't want it to be quite as complicated is maybe a little overwhelmed by the scoring aspect of it. Have you played it with the intro level? Yeah, yeah. I actually enjoy it a lot. It was just as enjoyable. Um, there was still that pull, push and pull of where I want to put the animals together, but I want the terrain tiles to match. The scoring was just almost just as high, um, you know, opposed to like Isle of Cats, where I'll play the family level yep. with my kids, but only because they can't play the, you know, they're not ready to play the main level yet. But mm-hmm. this one is just as enjoyable. I think I love I love the theme. It looks great. This nice little um, animals. I think don't think the theme comes through. It's it's really pretty abstract, you know. Yeah, it's it definitely doesn't have a strong underlying theme. No, it feels I- more abstract. I like the artwork. The artwork's nice. I mean, the components seemed really good. I mean, it's an AEG game, so mm-hmm. naturally those things are going to be pretty solid. My daughter really enjoyed it Enjoyed it a lot. My son, it was a little too, I think, too abstract for him. Mm-hmm. He can't really comprehend, like, the different ways to score. Like, it's hard to tell, like, am I going to get more points if I go here, more points if I go here? Like, I think it was just a little too much for him, opposed to a game like Ticket to Ride, where, you know, he's choosing from a route that's... 20 points or a route that's 10 points. That's really clear to him. This, Mm -hmm. you don't really know how you're going to score until the end of the game. You figure it out. 
Yeah, I would say the the scoring cards that you have for each animal, mm-hmm. they can be, I don't want to say difficult, but mm-hmm. sometimes you're just like, wait, exactly how does that play out? For example, the salmon. Yep. You can't have salmon next to other salmon or... You can. You but the, Each salmon can only touch two other salmon. So you want a run of salmon. Point proven, right? Like Yeah. You got to... There's They're a little fiddly with the rules. That's what the intermediate variant is really great for, a beginner. But I a mean, beginner and an intermediate one. Still, it wasn't that... I don't think it was overly complicated. I mean, when we played the game, we played the game with um, a couple newer players, mm-hmm. you know, and they seemed to pick up on it fairly easily. Yeah, I like it. it. It is a little bit more complicated, but you can, if if it's a little overwhelming to you, you can just kind of ignore it and just place your animals wherever you want and hope you end up scoring them that way because some of them will score regardless. They just won't score as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that part of it. It's it's not, you're not restricted at all. Well, and depending on who you're playing with, you could always just, you know, choose your own set that are the easiest ones to choose, right? Yep, and that's what I did. Yeah, I intentionally picked, tried to pick the easy of each animal. And they kind of escalate a little bit. The game was fun. I don't know if it's necessarily one of those games specifically for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoyed it, but yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it that isn't like so many people love this game. And I thought it was fine. You know, I didn't necessarily think it was incredible. You know, I thought for the most part, it, I thought it was a solid game. I didn't necessarily think it was anything overly special. Okay. You know, I love this I know. Game. Yeah, I know you do, but. You're wrong. This game is very special. <laughs> it's amazing, and I love it. I loved it the first time I played it, and I loved it every single time I played it afterwards and every single way I played it. I mean, that hey, everyone has their opinion. I love the balance between like, okay, do I work on the terrain, but I need these animals. And when you can get one, a tile and an animal that combines that it's a terrain you need and, a t- and an animal that you need, oh, I just love it. I love the abstractness of it. It's so fun. I'll, I'll play this a hundred times. I can see why people love this game, mm-hmm. okay? And I'm not knocking the game. I think for me, it was fine. I don't necessarily think it was anything extraordinary, but I understand why people like it. This It's a simplistic game with interesting, deeper choices than just pick a tile and pick a animal token, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I can, I definitely understand the appeal with that. For I don't know, for me, it just didn't, it was fine. I, I can't give you... It was because of this specific thing or anything like that. It was just, I don't know, I got I played it. I was like, cool. I don't necessarily, like, if I play it again, if you said, hey, Bob, let's play Cascadia, I'd be like, okay. But I'm not going to be like, hey, we should play Cascadia. You so know? what would you rate it? I'd probably give it a six and a half mm-hmm. out of 10. I'd give it a 10 out of 10. I loved it. Yeah, I just love it. I think if you like Carcassonne, you'll love this game. I love it's, Carcassonne. It's it's like, Car- but it's got more choices. Carcassonne, you just get one tile and you're like, all right, that's where it goes. I don't know. I just, this is my favorite tile laying game. I love it. Yeah, I'd recommend you giving this game a shot. I think it's beautiful. I love it. Um, if you like tile laying games, you like puzzly games, drafting games, or if you're just looking for a good welcoming game, I think because it's so unrestrictive, there's a lot of strategy in the way you play, but you're not forced to put yourself in a difficult situation and like end up feeling kind of stupid. You can just do whatever you want with it. No big deal. You can play it really casually. I definitely recommend giving this game a try. Yeah, I agree. That's It's definitely a casual game, and it doesn't make people feel like they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. You know, for as far as the simplistic rule set, I can definitely, again, I can see why people like it. I just, for whatever reason, it just didn't, like... Get you excited. It just, yeah, it just didn't click for me, which is fine, I guess. I don't know. I'll play it again. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll change my rating, but... Hmm, that's fair. You can be wrong about things. All right, that's Cascadia. So I want to talk about an actually good game. Wow. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No. So the game I want to talk about is called Tiny Towns. It's a city building game designed by Peter McPherson and also published by AEG. In this game, players are going to take on the roles of mayors, building the most prosperous town they can. They do this by constructing different buildings on a 4x4 blank grid that they're going to have in front of them. On a player's turn, they are going to be considered the master builder for the round, and they announce one resource, which could be wood, stone, glass, wheat, or brick. Then each player must take that resource cube and place it on some empty space on their board. If a player can't place a cube in their town, then that player's game is completely done. That's how the game is going to end. After everyone has placed their cube, then players are allowed to construct buildings. And there's going to be eight different buildings available for the players to construct. 
Seven are set up in the center of the board and are available for all players to build. Each building card has a diagram of resource cubes arranged in a very specific pattern. For example, one building could have a stone adjacent to a wood. This is the requirement you need to construct that building. After you've placed a chosen cube on the board, if you have met the pattern needed for the building, you can now remove those cubes and build that building in one of those spots that you had those cubes. The pattern could be mirrored, it could be flipped, it could be rotated, then play continues on to the next player. Each community building card has some sort of benefit or scoring condition on them. For example, like one of the buildings could have could be a cottage and they score three points if they're fed. Then there also could be a farm building that feeds a certain number of cottages. And players are going to continue taking turns until everyone has filled their board. The game ends and then you're going to score each of those building types. I think what makes this game great is the simplicity. It's a very simple game. It has extremely fast turns, and all you're really doing is creating patterns on this 4x4 grid. Yeah, it's a tiny space you're working from. Well, it's called Tiny Towns. It's ah, going to be a I get it. Yeah. Got him, coach. <laughs> One of the things I do want to mention about those fast turns is they can almost be too fast, because what will end up happening is somebody will say, all right, wood. And then the next person is just going to grab stone. Well, wait, 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 wait. I haven't put, I haven't, I haven't put my wood down yet. Like, hold on. Like, hold on. Like, like, let's wait. Let's wait. Let's wait. Uh, it is nice and quick. What I really like about it is, again, that simplicity of, you know, bingo style, grab this cube. Everyone else has to do it. So you almost have to, you're forced to deal with what you get. Mm-hmm. You might have a plan, but if somebody else makes you take a blue cube there every turn that they play, then you're <laughs> stuck with trying to figure out what to do with this blue cube. Otherwise, it wastes your whole board, fills up when you, you don't use it correctly. Yeah, Chris, we're talking to you specifically. <laughs> the last game we played, he was like, glass, glass, glass. I didn't need, I didn't, I needed anything but glass. Yeah. The one thing I didn't need. They clogged up the board. Oh, uh, it was awful. Mm-hmm. My game ended early on that one. Yeah, Thanks this lot, game buddy. makes you feel like, I don't know, it just makes you feel so stupid, like, oh, crap, I did that wrong. Oh, I did that wrong. And then you're at the end, and you're like, well, I scored negative 10 points. I don't know. I disagree. I don't think it does at all. I think for the most part, the patterns tend to be fairly simplistic. Like, you just need to, like, you can just, yeah, the patterns don't seem overly complicated to complete. Yeah, but the buildings are each different and they change game to game what they do. So you're like, all right, I guess I'll make this building because I have this cube and I got to use this cube for something. And you're like, oh, that building isn't going to score at all. I shouldn't have never built that building. So that's a little frustrating. You know, know, I can can see your point on that and I know how we can fix that. You read the cards before you play the game. Yeah, we got to read them and remember them. That's... They're sitting Can in I read the... them in between everybody's turn? Yeah, if you want. It's sitting right in front of everyone to see. Yeah. But there is an advantage to building. Even if your building doesn't score you points, it's, there's no harm in building it because yep. it you want to put a building down in every space because there are, all your empty spaces are going to be worth negative one point. So at least it's every building gives you at least one point. Well, some of them, some of them do, some of them don't. For example, I mean, like the farm or whatever does not give you. It technically, yes, I see what you're saying because if it covers up a square, then you're not losing a point. Yes, that's right. what I mean. And the, but that's the thing. Every building, for the most part, has some sort of benefit that is going to be useful mm-hmm. if you place it in the right spot. This is true. A lot of them is going to be placement based, so it's very much going to be a game where you're going to need some spatial reasoning to figure out where you want to put your cubes and then build your buildings because. Certain ones, for example, uh, an inn might say this inn scores two points as long as it's not in a row or column with another inn. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'd have to start making your inns at a diagonal. Every time I play this game, I'm like, oh, I want to play it again because I know I'll do better. And then I play it and I don't do any better, but I'm like, it's okay. I know I can do better. I want to play it again. And I think that's I think that's a good game, right? Yeah, it is. It is. And it's short enough. So even though I get really frustrated with myself that I like screwed it all up, I, it's really short. It's only like what twenty minutes. So uh, it, it, yeah, so not a ton. It's yeah. fine, you know. Well, and it's I think it's simple to teach that whole you know one person picks like one person picks a cube. Everyone else has to take the same cube. Mm-hmm. You know that I want to say bingo style mechanic. Mm-hmm. I think for the most part, people understand that. You know, I think the hardest part is going to be okay. I've made this pattern. I have to build in those one of those spots, mm-hmm. right? The only restriction you have, because that's the other thing. When you place cubes, it's not like you have to place them adjacent 
There's no rules, yeah. You can play and it anywhere on your board. And you want to build your building in a spot that will leave the spots around it, you're still able to fill up with cubes and put another building out. If you select the wrong spot and then all of a sudden you've got a spot in there, like maybe one square that's completely surrounded, you're not going to fill that spot either. Yeah, and that's one of those things. It's this ramp up effect, right? Where you have all this open terrain. You're like, I can put cubes anywhere. Do, do, do. And then you're all of a sudden saying, wait, hold on, stop. Don't don't pick a resource cube. I, I don't know where I want to put this. Yeah. You know, because I don't want to back myself into a corner. Like, I don't want to keep accumulating glass on a board where it doesn't need glass, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then at some point, everyone's it's going to inevitably happen where everyone's going to be like, well, I can't do anything else, so let me put mm-hmm. this cube here, and then the game ends. Everyone gets to continue going around until they're done, though. Right, exactly. Everyone, the game ends differently for each player. Mm-hmm. But it's so quick that it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, if this game so. was any longer, I probably would get too frustrated with it. Yeah. But because it's so nice and short, and I love the puzzly challenge of it, and trying to trying to figure out the best spot to do with what you get. Yep. Yeah, I enjoy it, even though it makes me mad. <laughs> you know, we played that game recently of it, and I'm really curious to know your score in this game because as soon as we were done, you're like, "I hate this game." And I don't know if like you legit meant like you hate this game no, or, I don't. or if you just like hated how you played that yeah. particular game. Yes, because I thought I was going to do better, you know, than I did last time. And I didn't. I did worse. I did. I was the worst out of anybody, though. I scored the least. And it was because of all that glass. Like, <laughs> uh, I'm still bitter about it. All right. I guess I won't be that mad at Kristen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I give it a seven. I still really like this game. Nice. Yeah. I, I, I wa- I'd play it again. I want to play it again. I want to redeem myself. Have you won this game yet? Oh, no. Well, that's one of those things, right? You even said if you haven't won a game, I gotta keep playing. You gotta keep playing until you get good at it. Yeah, I do. I do want to mention before I give my rating the replayability. Like I said before, there are eight different buildings. Seven are community buildings in the base game. There is, I think, four choices per building, except for one. You always play with the cottage. The cottage is always it's the same every single game. But those other six community buildings all are random, so they could be anything. You know, and it always changes up the way they score. For example, at the most basic level, a farm will feed four cities. Well, sometimes a farm will only feed cities in specific orientations or whatever. So there's a lot of replayability. And I think it's fun seeing which cards combo with which ones. There is an eighth building that players can build, which are specific to them. And it's only one building. And you get like a special card. And nobody sees what it is, so then you can you build it, and then you're going to, again, get some sort of endgame scoring or in, sort of benefit or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think the replayability actually is extremely great in just the base box. I think they've l- released a couple expansions at this point, so there's a ton of replayability for the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm giving the game a 7.5 out of 10. I really liked it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good, fast game. It's puzzly enough for the length of time in which you're playing it. Yep. I think it's a great little filler game to have. Filler around. game? It's, I don't think it's a filler game. Well, 20 minutes. You can get it in. With I don't know if filler. it's... I, I feel like it's longer than 20 minutes. Maybe. It feels like a 20-minute game. Maybe it's like a 40-minute game. It's probably 30. Okay. As long <laughs> as I'm wrong. Yeah. As long as you're inaccurate. I would definitely recommend giving this game a try if you like city-building games, if you like those puzzly spatial reasoning games. Definitely give this one a shot. I think it's a good one. That's Tiny Towns. This week I played Meadow. It's a card collection game designed by Clemens Kalitsky, published by Rebel Studio. In this game, players take on the role of explorers competing to be the most skilled nature observer. To win, they collect cards with the most valuable species, landscapes, and discoveries. They do this by selecting and playing cards into their own meadow. You start by laying a ground card that is a certain type of terrain and has an animal symbol on it representing an animal that lives in that terrain. Each subsequent card has requirements on it, like the bird may require insects, so you can only lay the bird card down if you have already played a card with an insect on it. What makes this game enjoyable is the gorgeous artwork. Each card is unique and beautiful, and they are just a joy to look at. I also enjoy the way you select cards throughout the game. It's got this interesting mechanic where you have this grid of cards set out, a 4x4 grid, and you can take your car, your tile and kind of select along the outer edges which card you're going to take. And then as that fills up, the choices are limited throughout the game. It's almost like Quadropolis. That's mm-hmm. the one game I keep thinking about when I think about this game is that mechanic in Quadropolis where you take those arrows and set it next to a column or whatever. And that's where you're going to be picking up your stuff. 
the artwork. I want to talk talk about the artwork real quick. The artwork on the outside of the box. I don't know what it is about that artwork, but I just don't like it. The fox. Yes, I can't, I can't tell you why. I just don't like it. The artwork in the game, I think, is good, but for whatever reason, that artwork on the box just like I just don't want to play it because of that <laughs> artwork. I and people love the artwork in this game. Yeah, and the artwork on the cards and stuff is good. It's I gorgeous. Re- it's watercolors. Each card is unique. It's absolutely gorgeous. The, I don't know what it is about the fox. It's, it's a little odd looking. I, I see what you're saying. It, I feel like it was an odd choice because even looking at the box cover, it doesn't, it almost looks like a prototype game. Hmm. I don't know. I can't put into words what it is specifically about it, but that box cover just, oh, box man. Box cover's fine. Yeah. I disagree. I don't like it. I feel like this game was made for somebody like me. I love beautiful nature art- artwork. I love the theme. I love card collection. However, for the most part, it was just too simple. And the card co- selection action was a little too overwhelming. You know, you had too many choices and weren't really sure. Like you didn't necessarily, the things that were available weren't necessarily what you needed. Mm-hmm. So it felt really restrictive. I ended up spending a lot of time thinking about what card to take and it slowed the game down for what was a really simple game. Yeah, I think you and I are both going to somewhat agree that this game isn't for us. And it kind of sucks because I've heard so many positive things about this game. Yeah, I was really excited about it. So was I. Like, it seems to have wide appeal. The artwork in game, Mm -hmm. caveat in game is good. And I was really looking forward to trying it because I've just heard so many good things. Mm Mm-hmm. And kind of like Cascadia, and actually worse than Cascadia, it just felt meh. Mm-hmm. It didn't. The choices were decent. I like that quadropolis mechanic where you have to place those numbered arrows on certain rows and columns and collect those cards. Mm-hmm. But what I found was so the way in which you have to build cards is there's prerequisites. Yeah. In order to get those prerequisites, you have to have certain symbols on your tableau. But when you play a card, you're going to be covering symbols. Mm-hmm. So you're not collecting symbols. I thought you were going to collect them. And then as the game progresses, it becomes, you know, you have more and more symbols laid out there and it would kind of build off of each other. But instead, you're covering them up. So you you might get a tile with a bird on it. But now you've covered up that bird. So no, you no longer have a bird that you can use for other tiles. Yeah, it almost felt like restrictive in a way. Yeah. Because I, so I have a slug. Cool. I can play this bird. Sweet. Now I don't have a slug anymore. Okay. A card in my hand needs a slug. So now I have to try to find a slug. Yeah. In the tableau. Okay. There's no slug. I'll pivot to something else. Maybe I'll do a butterfly. Okay. I need this. I now now covered that up. And now it doesn't have this like build. Yeah. There's no build. The, your last turn's the same as your first turn. And there was almost too many different types of symbols so that the symbols that you did need just weren't coming up. The other thing I wanted to bring up with those that card play is, so there's a section on the board where you can go as opposed to drafting cards, you can take special actions on your little arrow tiles. Mm-hmm. And there's this circle with these tokens on them. And what they do is they award you points based on having matching or having certain icons next to each other, adjacency. Right. I understand why they did it because it gives you a restriction or it gives you a goal to try to achieve in your tableau of cards Mm -hmm. because you're trying to achieve that specific pattern or those two next to each other to score those points. I didn't care for it. It just seemed it seemed tacked on. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem completely necessary. It's random. So that's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just something about it. I was like, yeah, it was almost just like, well, we want to restrict the way you build your tableau. And this is the way we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. I found this game just a little too hard for how simple it was. If it was not quite as complicated, like with getting the symbology correct, like if there was less symbols and it was just as simple, I probably would have enjoyed it more. Mm -hmm. Or if there was more of a buildup to it, I might have enjoyed it more. But I felt this game was just really, I wouldn't even say fine. It wasn't that good. Did you play it with your family? Yes. They didn't like it either. Really? I'm, I'm selling it. I already got rid of it. Dang, you're not even, wow, okay. That's how much I didn't like it. I was so disappointed because I thought for sure I would like it. When you brought it out and you were like, let's play Meadow, I was excited. I was like, cool, I want to I see this game. And yeah, I because I had gone back and forth about getting it mm-hmm. and the fox on the cover was preventing me from doing it. I don't, I don't know why Like, I get so triggered by that kind of artwork, but I was. 
And I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know. I'll wait. I know Natasha's going to get it just yep. because you, if I could pick a game that would be a Natasha game, it would be that. Yep. And yeah, I just, it was so underwhelming. The problem is I feel like I'm missing something mm-hmm. because of how much people love this game. It's getting so much like buzz. People are talking about it. Everyone seems to like it. And for whatever reason, it makes me feel like I'm weird because I don't like it. Yeah, I did go back and reread the rules thinking maybe I read it wrong. Maybe I taught it wrong. But no, we were playing it right. I I don't get it. I don't get the appeal. But a lot of people love it. Even when I was going to sell it at the game store, the guy who I was handing it to at the store is like, oh, maybe I'll pick it up because I've been waiting for a new copy of it because it's not out. They don't have it in the store right now. They love it. Other people in our game group love it and they've been playing it and I saw them playing it. And so that's why I thought I would like it. But I was surprised. I was disappointed with it. Yeah, I would agree. What is, I'm curious now, what's your rating? Rated a five. I like it better than Poop Bingo. Yeah, I'm also going to give it a five. I wanted to like it more than I did. And I don't know if maybe that's the problem is I was just disappointed because I expected more. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I still part of me thinks that I have to be missing something because everyone likes it so much. Mm -hmm. I would still recommend this, you know, giving this game a shot because a lot of people do love it. If you like beautiful games, games that are low stress, you know, you're just going to build a little meadow, collect things as you go, then, you know, definitely give it a shot because people do love it. And we could just be wrong about this. Yeah, we could actually both be wrong finally. <laughs> unlikely, but. Yeah, it seems unlikely. Sure. Don't don't buy it. It's my recommendation. <laughs> Try somebody else's copy. Yeah, right. Yeah. Rent it first. <laughs> All right. That's meadow. The game I want to talk about next is Lords of Waterdeep which is a worker placement game designed by Peter Lee and Rodney Thompson, published by Wizards of the Coast. In this game, players are going to take on the role of lords in the town of Waterdeep, vying to become the greatest lord of the city has ever seen. The game is played over the course of eight rounds. Players are going to be using their agent workers to recruit four different types of adventurers, clerics, fighters, rogues, and wizards. On a player's turn, they'll take one of their workers and place it on one of the available building spaces, and then they will take that corresponding action. At the start of the game, there are going to be nine basic buildings players may assign their workers to, but as the game progresses, players will be constructing additional buildings, opening up additional action spaces. Some of these action spaces provide players with the adventurer cubes that they need to complete quests. Others could give players money, they could give players more quests to complete, or the ability to play intrigue cards. Entry cards let you manipulate the game in some way, whether that is giving another player a mandatory quest that they need to fulfill before doing any other quests, or giving you money or adventurer cubes. And then after players have placed their agents, then they have an opportunity to complete any quests that they might have met the prerequisites for. Then it is the next player's turn. After eight rounds, you do any final scoring and the most points wins. Most of your points tend to accumulate through those quests. As you complete quests, you're going to be gaining different benefits. You could be, the biggest thing is you're going to be gaining points. What I think really makes this game fun is the interaction between players. Most worker placement games, most of the interaction is I take a spot you want, but the entry cards in this game allow for more interesting player interactions, which I really like because again, scoring most of your points based off quests, if you give somebody a mandatory quest, now they have to pivot and do that quest first before they can complete anything else. So they might be working towards something and now they're taking those cubes and, you know, using it for that mandatory quest. Yeah, this game's a um a great introduction to worker placement game. Um, do you like it? No. <laughs> Is it the theme? No. No, so I played it quite a few times and the first few times I played it I really enjoyed it. Yep. And I really liked getting those quests completed where they give you a benefit like now each future quest costs one less purple cube or something like yep. that. Yeah. And I played it quite a few times with my husband, and he always would go for the largest quest, and I would always go for the quests that would like give me special powers later on, and I yeah. consistently lost. So then I started going for just the large quests, and once yep. I was doing that, it really just kind of felt like a cube pusher to me. I was just, get the large quest, try to get the cubes, and then spend my cubes to get the quest in. So then it became kind of bland. Yep. Um, I can see that. So that that's my only complaint with the game, but I got a lot of enjoyment out of it when I was playing it. And sure. at that point, then I was like, all right, I think I'm done with it. And I let it go. I agree with those points. I don't necessarily think claiming the big quests always will lead to winning. I think the intrigue cards have enough interaction where you can force people to deviate from that plan. 
that said, I th- overall, it's a straight worker, straightforward worker placement game. Beautiful, though. One of the most beautiful ones. Yeah, some of that old school D&D artwork. Mm-hmm. The, the theme. Okay. I love the theme, obviously, right? Yeah. Like, I've beaten that horse to death of what I like with that. But the theme is very thin on this game. Yes. So it literally could be anything yeah. that you could be accumulating. You could be accumulating resources and completing buildings as opposed to quests it like it could be any theme yep i enjoy the theme and i think a lot of player D players have moved have migrated to playing board games because of this game mm-hmm. you know they're this game's gonna have a very special place because i think it's been able to bridge people who play role-playing games and board gamers with a game that looks like it'd be cool to play too yes it's- it looks good. The components are great. The, all the pieces are beautiful. The, even the money's kind of cool. Yeah, it has that unique kind of like half moon money yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It, beautiful big board. Yeah, it looks cool. Like it, it's got a great place in the um, board gaming world. Like it belongs there, you know? Yep. So what I do like too is everyone gets a lord at the beginning of the game, which is, is going to be basically an end game scoring condition. It mm-hmm. might say you score so many points per certain type of quest yeah arcane quests or whatever it happens to be so you'll get score certain points and i think i think because it's a straightforward game it's really good for a welcoming game yep it is so the the biggest thing is going to be theme oriented like i wouldn't know if i would pull this out for somebody that wasn't interested in dungeons and dragons yeah yeah that's true so what would you rate this game i would rate it a six out of ten i enjoyed it well made well done um it's just not my favorite sure i think if i would have rated this game a few years ago it'd be higher but at this point, I'm rating it a 7 out of 10. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those games that's just going to stay in my collection for eternity mm-hmm. just because of the nostalgia piece of it. I love that old school-ish D&D artwork on it. I think people, again, who play role-playing games are really going to like this game. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives you that similar feel. Waterdeep is very iconic location. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend giving this game a try if you like D&D worker placement games. I think it's light enough that it's approachable to a lot of people. I think it's not an overwhelming rule set. It's It feels good completing those quests, especially when you have like those big quests that you're talking about mm-hmm. that you can score 25 points. When you finally achieve that, there's just something that feels good about that. Yeah, I agree. I think this is one of those games that everybody should try at least once. I agree. That is Lords of Waterdeep. All right. So I got a little story to tell. Oh, here we go. My son, down, grab my popcorn. My son came home from school and he's like, Mom, let's go to the store. I really want to get Uno Attack. And I'm like, Uno Attack? He's like, Yeah, do you know what, what that game is? And I'm like, Yeah, it's it's like Uno, but worse because you just randomly get cards shot at you. So it just makes the game longer. Like that's literally all it does. He's like, Yeah, but it's fun. I'm like, But is it? He's like, Yeah, it's fun. And I'm like, I don't think so. And he's like, It's my money, I'm gonna do it. All right, fine. So we go to the store. They didn't have Uno Attack, but they did have a game called Uno Showdown. Yes, I'm intrigued. So I said, fine, you can buy it, but I am not playing that game with you, just so you know. Like, you're going to have to play it with your sister or your friends. I'm not playing that. He's like, okay, that's fine, Mom. So I played Uno Showdown. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, there's no way, there's no way in this world you're going to get away with not playing that game with your son. Yeah, like I played it. It's an Uno game published by Mattel. So in this game, players want to be the first to get rid of all their cards. The twist is that about a third of the cards have a showdown symbol on them. And when you play that one of those cards, you have to do a showdown with the next person in line, you know, the next player. Yeah. You take one to three cards and slide them into this contraption. Oh, my God. Did you bring it? Did you bring the contraption? I got it right here. (laughs) So then you slide it in there. Yeah. And you press this button. And then when you know the music stops and the green light turns on, you flip, flip one your side. You try to be the first to flip yep. it, and it flips the card. Like if you're the first one to hit flip it, it will flip the card towards the other person. So yep. Whoever it lands on gets the those cards. So you just get extra cards. Does it rotate this this contraption? Yes. Yeah. Whoever plays the card, they do a showdown with the person who would be up next to play. Ah. Unless it's a wild, then you can pick whoever you want. Gotcha. Okay. What makes this game horrible <laughs> is. Every about third, every third card you play, you pause the game, you slide the card into this, 
you hear that? It's like we're at the club. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a little different length each time. Yep. It's not like it's three seconds. I mean, that was that was a solid little bit there. Yes. So yep. if you like Uno, but you think, man, Uno's way too short. I have to extend it out and make it longer, then this is the game for you. We found it. Yeah, I got it for you. It's, it's sold at the store. You can't get Uno Attack anymore, but you can get Uno Showdown. This That's is so good. the worst game ever made. And my family loves it. My kids even got my husband to play it with us. Only if I played it with them. <laughs> I will sucks. admit that we had a lot of fun playing it. But I think the fun was strictly around the fact that I was openly opposed to playing this game. And so they loved... Watching mom squirm with having to play this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Having you yeah. die a little inside. Yeah. Although I will, I will brag a little and say I do typically shoot the cards at them. I'm quick. I can't, I can I don't get the cards so I can you, go out. Okay. So just because you shoot the cards at them fast, do you win? Yeah, typically because I don't have as many cards as them. <laughs> That's, so That's good. the only saving grace. Uh Uno attack. Play that play that thing again. I just hold on. Uh, <laughs> oh, that one was short. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to listen to that sound about, you know, ten to twenty times, have at it. I would rate this game a one. And I'd recommend giving this game a try if you hate yourself, <laughs> if you feel like you deserve to be punished. Yeah. I'd also recommend giving it as a gift to somebody, child, whom you hate, if the, you want them to have fun playing this game. The best part is the best part is like somebody loves this. Oh. Like it's there's a specific like niche group of people that are just like, oh my god, Uno Attack is so good. Well, this is Uno Showdown, but yeah, whatever, same thing, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> Then we had fun, like, we'd be ready, to, me and my daughter would be go, ready to go, and then my husband would just randomly yell in the middle of it, go! And he'd get her to hit the button faster. So there there was some fun in the game. I will admit, we, my family had fun playing it, and yeah. You guys developed a meta. Yeah, <laughs> but I think, I think if I kept my mouth shut and didn't say anything, my opinions about it, they probably wouldn't think it's so great. But that's uh, Uno Showdown, if anybody's interested. And hearing this song. Going to the club. <laughs> I think with that, with Uno Showdown, I think that's going to wrap up the reviews of games we've been playing. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to be discussing board game jargon. Welcome back. Next up, I want to talk about board game jargon. I know if you're new to the hobby, some of our terms you might not be familiar with. So I wanted to kind of talk about some of the popular jargon and then go through and define some of the mechanics that are popular in a lot of these games and give some examples of board games that we like that use these mechanics. So first up, BGG. That stands for Board Game Geek. It's actually a website. They've got all kinds of reviews online. Um, if you're interested in a game, you got to go to BGG and check it out. You can see pictures, reviews. They also uh, will publish some player aids that you can do, that you can print out to add to your game to help um, if you're learning the game. Uh, there's a lot of, um, anytime you have questions with rules, I always go to BGG and clarify it. So definitely check out BGG if you haven't yet. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of information that they have. It's probably the best source for board game information. Yep, and that's boardgamegeek.com. Next up, the meeple. <laughs> the meeple. <laughs> the meeple. What is a meeple? A meeple is a little wooden person. Miniature people. So a lot of games will come with these little wooden pieces that look like little circle people or whatever. They have a circle head, circle arm, circle legs or whatever. That is what a meeple is. It's going to be those little figures. Yeah, so zone. Yep, exactly. First ones, yep. I think they were the first ones with the meeple. Yep, so that is a meeple. All right, my least favorite word, AP, analysis paralysis. Cut it out. <laughs> that means you take way too long for your turns. Some games definitely have a lot more analysis paralysis, but anytime you're taking, you're sitting there staring at the board, thinking about what to do, and it's your turn, and you're thinking instead of taking your turn, that's AP. Cut it out. Okay, I think long turns are a byproduct of having AP, but analysis paralysis, yeah, it just, there's so much, you're digesting so much information 
that it's incredibly difficult for you to make a choice on your turn, i.e. long turns. Yeah, I think of na- analysis paralysis where you're saying, I could do this, and I, if I went there, I'd get five points. If I went there, I'd get three points. If I went there, I'd get eight points. Like that type of thing, like trying to strategize, yep. but spending so much time on your turn. If you want to think about that stuff, that's awesome. You do it on somebody else's turn. When it's your turn, time to make a move. Yeah, you definitely like people. You like to keep things moving. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, king making. King making is when, as a player, you know there's no way I'm going to win, and I'm going to make sure as heck Natasha can't. Mm-hmm. So that means I'm going to make Chris win. Yeah. And you'll do whatever you can in your power to make sure. Natasha does this to me all the time, where she's like, let's just make sure Bob doesn't win. Let's just make you know make his life during board games as difficult as we possibly can. <laughs> See, I think of kingmaking more of, it's my turn, it's like the last move of the game, I can't win, but whatever I do, I'm either going to take the victory from you or I'm going to take it from them, and whoever I don't take it from is left with the victory. Yes. You know, I don't think it's always intentional. I think intentionally targeting somebody might be something a little different, but kingmaking is, I think you're often left in a position where I can decide to go there and you would win, or I go there and you would win. I think kingmaking at its most basic level is... The person who wins is not determined by that player. I determine who wins, not them at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's usually the last turn of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it can happen a couple turns beforehand, but usually, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Action points. So action points are a little different than straight up actions. Oftentimes in a game, you'll have maybe three actions you can do. Think of like Pandemic. Forbidden Island, each player on their turn gets three actions. Action points are when each action is assigned a points value. You might get, let's say you get five action points. You can do something that costs one action point and something that costs two and then another action that costs, you know, two more. So that totals up to five action points. I think of Takal, you know, each action you do is has a different value to it. It Mm -hmm. adds a lot of complexity to your actions and we don't see this in very many games anymore and I think for good reason. I prefer it when games say you have three actions, all actions are of equal value. You can pick any three or do three of one, however you want to do it but you know in Tikal you can like I'm making this up but you can maybe move for one action or you can flip over a tile but that costs three action points. Yep. Welcoming games are they used to be referred to as gateway style games so the two tend to be synonymous with each other. Mm -hmm. You'll hear either people say welcoming game or gateway style game. And that is usually referred to a game that is easy to teach people who aren't gamers mm-hmm. and get people into the hobby. So the the biggest example I can think of is a game like Ticket to Ride. Mm-hmm. Ticket to Ride is one of those games that rules-wise is pretty simple and most people can understand it. It's very welcoming. People can grasp the idea behind it. Mm-hmm. The theme is inviting, but it's also one of those games that uh, a seasoned gamer will still play. Well, I mean, I think nowadays it's like fun to hate on Ticket to Ride. I don't know. I really still like Ticket to Ride. I think, Mm -hmm. side note, I think there's a lot of complexity to that game that people don't necessarily give it credit for, Mm -hmm. but that's besides the point. So yeah, Welcoming Game is a, a, I don't want to say easier style game. Yeah, and they're a little different than Family Style, where Family Style is more games that could be included for all ages. They're definitely more, I would say, the next level of complexity, not just your basic game. It's somebody, a game that you would want to introduce to people who's interested in learning more about hobby board games. Yep. Yep, that's a welcoming game. Brain Burner. I love a good brain burner. A brain burner is a game that hurts your brain, that you have to put a lot of thought into, and that just kind of stresses you out, I think. I think a lot of times, too, Brain Burner and AP tend to go hand in hand in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they definitely do. If if you have a Brain Burner game, you're definitely going to spend more time on everyone's turn because they're going to be a little bit more prone to AP. Yep, agreed. Puzzly is the next one we want to talk about, and that is a style game that for the most part, is some sort of puzzle that you're trying to put together and figure out. So in Tiny Towns is a prime example. That game can Mm -hmm. be puzzly because you're trying to create specific patterns, but you've already also placed other cubes there. So now you're trying to figure out where am I going to put the cube in order to build the building I need to. It's a little mini puzzle for you to figure out. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to extract certain information to make best moves possible. 
That's mm-hmm. what we would consider a puzzly style game. Yeah, I like Azul and uh, Cascadia are both puzzly style yep. games as well. Yep. All right, next up is a Euro gamer, or you could say Euro style game, a German style game. These are games that often have indirect player interactions. They focus on maybe acquisition of resources and economics opposed to direct conflict. Um, there's a really limited amount of luck. It's certainly a, it's a certain style game. Agricola is a common one. I think the biggest differentiation between that and the next one we're going to talk about, which is going to be uh, like an Amera game or Amera Thrash game, the biggest thing is player interaction. It's not conflict-based. Yeah. I would say is the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, so the next one that we were going to talk about, Amera, Amera game or Amera Thrash, more often than not, these are extremely thematic games, extremely conflict-driven Lots of luck, chucking dice, just kind of randomly seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, those style games like Risk is a good example of a Marathrash type game mm-hmm. because it you don't know what's going to happen until you start rolling some dice and seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. Blood Rage looks like one that's a Marathrash, but I kind of think it's more Euro-y because there's just so little... There's so little luck, it's a lot of strategy, but there is definitely that strong theme, the conflict, so I can see that yep. game being kind of both, living in both worlds. Next up, Point Salad. Point Salad is a game style where you can get points all kinds of ways. So you can kind of choose the type of game you want. You can go over here and get points this way. You can collect this and get points. You can go to this area and get points. There's pretty much um, a million different ways to, maybe not a million, maybe like 10 different ways to get points and you can do whatever you want and as long as you're collecting points. It's almost like anytime you do anything, you score points. Yeah. I'm going to move my meeple score two points. I'm going to collect this, score two points. Yeah. And you yeah. kind of, those type of games use typically scoring points throughout the game, yep. but then also collecting things that score you at the end of the game. It's one of those like death by a thousand cuts or whatever, mm-hmm. where you're just accumulating so many small amount of points that at the end of the game, you've like, man, I've earned 260 points. I don't even know how. Yeah. Two yeah. points at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Victory by a thousand points. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yep. There are two things I want to bring up. We made a list of board game jargon that we want to talk about. There's two specific ones that I would like to bring up that are not on our list. Number one is baddies, because you love to say baddies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So a baddie is a character or some sort of thing on the board that you're trying to defeat. A bad guy. A bad guy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Baddies. The, (laughs) The second one I want to talk about is what we have humbly referred to as a Natasha turn. (laughs) So a Natasha turn is when you do a bunch of stuff, you move some stuff around the board, and then- This is a flaw. You take it all back and redo it all. Take it all back, redo it all. I don't do that. That's a lie. (laughs) This is all made up. No, it is is legit. You ever come- Listen, I'm going to say this right now. If- any listener wants to see a Natasha turn in full force, you come find us. We will sit down and we will play Scythe and you will see what a Natasha turn is. She she has this way of like moving a bunch of pieces and then rearranging them. No, I always keep track. I never do it back. I never put it back wrong. So you say. And I think at You'll this point, at this point. Does. At this point in our game group, she'll do that and we'll be like, she's taking a Natasha turn. And everyone's like, yeah, she's probably cheating. (laughs) I never (laughs) cheat. And I don't. Okay, I'm going to go on record and say, I don't think you cheat whenever you do this. I just it's funny because it's like we've just all started joking around about this Natasha turn where you're going to do something. And then all of a sudden you'll stop and be like, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to take it all back. I don't want to do that. I want to do this. <laughs> the Natasha turn. It's because I refuse to be AP. So as long as I'm actively moving, it's not considered AP because I'm taking my turn. It just I takes disagree. a lot longer. I disagree. I disagree 100%. <laughs> I disagree. AP leads into long turns. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Natasha turn. The no. infamous Natasha turn. All right. Mechanics. Some mechanics I want to talk about. Yep. Dudes on a map. I think that's pretty obvious. Any kind of game where there's a map and... Usually they're minis, you know, it could be uh, cardboard minis, you know, any kind of characters that you move across on a map and you typically will move from region to region and there'll be some kind of conflict on a dudes on a map game. I love Kemet, Blood Rage, Ankh, Rising Sun. Those are my favorite dudes on a map game. The next would be economic games where 
the goal is specifically generating economy in some way, generating income. So a game like Power Grid is a prime example where you need money in order to build these routes of power Mm -hmm. on this map. And it's all about generating the income you need Mm-hmm. in order to accomplish that goal. That yeah. is what an economic game would be. Yeah, or any game that you're earning income throughout the game and then spending that income to do better and better things. Yep. Roll and move. That's where you roll the dice and move your character. Monopoly is a classic of that game, and we typically hate roll and moves because there's just not a lot of choices. A good roll and move is going to be one where you can roll the dice and have a couple different choices of where to move it, but a game opposed to a game where you just roll the dice and you go to that spot. I think roll and move has a leaves a bad taste in people's mouths because of the lack of choices that you have. If I rolled a die and I had several choices based on that die roll and it involved moving in some capacity, mm-hmm. I think that would be different. But I don't. I, I can, can't think of a game that does that. Off I the can't top even of my head. think of like sorry. I would almost put in that route, even though you're not rolling a die, you're drawing cards. To but then you still have like four pieces to choose from. If you've got all four pieces out, you've got four choices where you you have to move seven spaces, but you could move any one of your pieces. Yep. Spinderella is a kids game that I referenced before. That's a roll and move, but you've got three ants that you can move, and then you've got a couple different things that you can use the dice for. So you've got choices with it. I think that's the was the biggest thing it comes down to is the amount of choices. You that need you choices. Have. Yes. Yeah. Yep. We got rolling rights. How did I get the rolling right one? <laughs> All right. So we got rolling rights, or a lot of times it'll be referred to as a flipping right. They're both in a very similar genre. A rolling right is you have a set of dice, you roll them, and then based on the results of those dice, you're going to do something. I think a typical rolling right is with a pencil or a marker. You're going to write something down. Yes. Yes. Welcome to Yahtzee, Ganshan Clever. Flipping right is very similar in. Instead of rolling dice and writing stuff on a sheet of paper, you're going to be flipping cards. And that's Welcome To. Welcome To is a prime example of that. You flip over a card and based on what is represented on those cards, you're going to be writing on your little sheets. I hate the term flip and write. Can we change it to reveal and write? Sure. Or or just call them all roll and writes. Yeah, whether you use cards or dice, they're roll and writes. Well, and that's the thing is most people refer to them as rolling rights, but then they like, well, it's a rolling right. Well, t- well, technically it's a flipping right. Yeah. Can we at least say reveal and right? I don't know. It's a rolling right. Why don't you like flipping right? I still like the word flip. It reminds me of flip off something. I don't, I just, I don't like it. Sure. All right. Yeah, fair reveal yeah. and right. Reveal and right. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Area control, area majority. This are a type of game where you want to have the most maybe uh, power in one region, the most characters in one region, the most influence in one area of the board. Typically, there'll be a map and you want to get your people out there. I don't love this mechanic in games as much, um, so I can't think of any great game. Bob, what are your favorite area control games? Ethnos is my favorite area control game. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of area control games. La Grande is a popular one. I haven't played that one. Um, Even, you know, some of the dudes on a map are very area control-like. Yeah, in a lot of ways, a dude on the map game is more than likely going to have an area control aspect to it mm-hmm. in some capacity. It's not quite like Ethnos where the number of discs you have in a region is your power and you will win based on the number of discs. Mm-hmm. Worker placement games are games where you have a pool of worker meeples and on your turn you take one and in some games you, some games you can actually take multiple. But at the most basic level, you will take one of your workers, you will set it down on a specific action space, and then you will resolve that action some way. We talked about Lords of Waterdeep, prime example of a worker placement game. You have a worker, you place it, you might collect cubes, quest cards, that kind of thing. Another big one is a game called Stone Age. Mm -hmm. Stone Age doesn't resolve until the end of the round. So as you're placing workers, you're going to resolve those spots later. But it's the same concept. You have Mm -hmm. a pool of workers. You're taking them and you're setting them in a specific action spot to take that action. Yeah, West Kingdom games are, are they're all worker placement and they're unique in that each of them uses workers a little bit differently. Yep. But yeah, anything that you kind of have limited space over, I think, would be workers placement. Deck builders. I love deck builders. Deck builders are unique in that you start off with maybe five, ten cards, and throughout the game you buy more cards and then put them in your discard pile typically. And then when you run out of those cards, you reshuffle all your discard pile. Now you've got more cards and you replay them and you collect more cards until you can get victory points or attack other people. 
The classic deck builder is Dominion. It's my favorite. It's one that I think everybody needs to play at least once just to to know how it plays. Yeah, I mean, there's been so many deck builders that have come out since Dominion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dominion's still the grandfather of deck building games. Yeah, like Dominion is really all about actions and coins and then using your coins to buy your victory points. There's a lot of more deck builders that have come out that do more attacking style, yep. but they're all, all different. But anything where you're starting off with a small amount of cards and building that up over the course of the game would be a deck builder. A tableau style game is a game in which you're building up a bunch of cards in front of you. And typically those cards allow you to do actions or enhance other things that you can do throughout the game. But you're building, creating something in front of you. Typically it's cards. Mm -hmm. So you'll play cards and then you'll continuously build up this little engine of cards to churn out points of some kind. Yeah. I think of Tableau typically anything that's your unique that nobody else has access to. Yep. Opposed to like. A player board where everybody has it in front of them or everybody has it in the center of the table everybody has access to it tableau could be anything that's your own yep engine builder i love engine building games engine building games are games that you start off with like limited power limited availability and then you're playing you know maybe cards or doing actions that give you better and better actions or playing more cards and then now all of a sudden maybe you start off the game earning you know three income per turn and then later at the end of the game you're earning 10 income anything that kind of builds up i think engine builder where you start in one spot and all of a sudden it can trigger multiple things and do a variety of things yeah yeah your one action that you went to kind of got you one thing now you go there again you get two things and next time um gizmos is a great um introduction to engine building you know you're you're collecting more cards and then you're getting more actions so then when you do those same actions now you're getting bigger and better stuff so combat system is how we would describe combat or conflicts in a game. Mm-hmm. And different games approach it in a variety of different ways. Kemet, for example, approaches it with a card play mechanic. That would be its combat system is through the card play. Mm-hmm. Whereas other games, like Civilization and New Dawn, is based on dice rolls. Mm-hmm. So something like Blood Rage is based off playing one individual card out of the set of cards you hand have so a combat system is just the way a game approaches conflict and how you resolve it co-op or semi-co-op so we talked about co-op quite a bit that's cooperative games then there are some games that are semi-co-op where you're working together to do this one big activity but yet you each have your own individual objective maybe um dead of winter is a great example so you're we're gonna win the game if we all survive the winter time but i'll only win if I also have five cans of food by the time the game ends, something like that. Usually there's a traitor mechanic too. A lot Often. of times in these games where everyone is dealt a secret objective card and sometimes one person could potentially be a traitor. Mm-hmm. The way they win is making sure nobody else does. Shadows over Camelot does mm-hmm. this as well. Yeah, you don't really know if you're working together or not. I'm not a big fan of semi-co-op games in general because either you you work together or you don't. There's kind of that weird like, okay, if I'm not going to win, do I just sabotage the game? Nobody wins, so that's not fun either. I love them. I love semi. Well, it depends on how well they're done. So something like Dead of Winter, I love that game. Mm-hmm. Shadows over Camelot, I love those style games. And I think the biggest thing is not knowing if there is or is not a traitor. That, that is That little fun. bit of doubt. Where, all right, people are working together, but how much are we really working together? Mm-hmm. What is your goal? In a game like Dead of Winter, yes, we're all, even if there's no traitor, okay? The only way every player wins is if they fulfill a secret objective. And like you said, it could be have five cans of food, have three cans of gas, have gas and a lighter or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So even a style game like that, if for some reason there is no traitor, you're always kind of wondering because people are holding on to cards and they're like, why aren't you playing that card? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's my secret objective. Is it though? Mm-hmm. Is it your secret objective? Yeah. So tile placement or tile laying games are games in which you start off with almost nothing as far as a board and you build it. Mm-hmm. That is going to be the biggest thing is building and expanding a board. So a game, something like Carcassonne starts off where there's no actual game board in the center. And you're placing tiles to the center and creating this massive board. I think it could be a massive board or you could be your own player board as well. Well, like Cascadia is a prime example. Mm-hmm. So that that's the second part of it is it could also be personal player boards. It could be individual based. It could be an entire board. But anytime you're taking a tile and 
placing it in some sort of orientation to another set of tiles would be a tile-laying game. Lots of great tile-laying games. Real-time games, Bob's favorite. I love them. Real-time oh, are games more. that you have to complete in real-time. So you set a timer, you know, maybe a little sand timer or your phone timer, and you got to complete it in that amount of time. Um, I talked about Fuse last time. That's a great one. Uh, Magic no, Maze not. is another one. No, it's not. We played that one this week. What was it called? Uh, Where we had to defuse the bomb. Or no, we had to build the spaceship. Something. Something like that. Building spaceship in real time. You end up doing a lot of yelling and screaming at each other. They're fun. Uh, I guess they can be with a certain type of group. They're not They're not my cup of tea. Next up is campaign style games. The main thing with a campaign style game is you'll be playing the game and as you're going through, you're building a story. You're playing consecutive games and expanding upon the story. Things can change. Things can move around. You can discover new things. You can do a different adventures, but usually you start off playing one game and the game progresses in some sort of storyline mm-hmm. is what a campaign style game would be. Opposed to a legacy style game where it's similar to a campaign style. However, legacy games, you'll uncover things as you play them and you might um, get out a, a pencil or a pen and start marking cards you know, getting out stickers and changing the board. There's permanent changes to the board. And typically you play through the legacy one time and maybe you're done or maybe you've got a unique game that you can continue playing on with your friends. But your game is going to be very different than somebody else who played that same game. I think originally legacy games were you play through the story, you're done because you're destroying cards. You're making, like you said, permanent changes. Mm -hmm. And the industry has done a much better job of trying to make legacy style games where you make permanent changes playable after you're done through the campaign. Mm -hmm. They can be either way, yeah. Betrayal on House on the Hill, I believe Clank Acquisitions Incorporated is the same thing. Their legacy style games were still playable after the fact. Yeah, Risk Legacy was the first one, but there's been a lot of great ones after that. Pandemic is one of our favorites. Yeah, if you get a chance to play Pandemic Legacy, do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Next up would be drafting style games, and drafting style games are games in which you have a set of choices, you pick one, and then you pass the rest of the choices to a different player. So probably one of the most well-known drafting style games is going to be a game like Seven Wonders, where you have a set of cards, you pick one, you play it into your tableau, and then you're going to pass the rest to the next player. Mm -hmm. I love drafting games. Yeah. Drafting games are so much fun because there's a lot of choices about what do I need, but what do I want to try to deny other players from getting. Sometimes drafting games can have a deck of cards that are laid out and you just kind of take turns taking one. I've seen it with um, where you roll a bunch of dice and then you draft them, you know, where one person takes the first, they get the first choice and everyone else gets a choice after that until they're gone. But a traditional drafting game is like you said, you've got a hand of cards, you pick one, pass them along. Next up is hidden movement. Hidden movement games are typically where you have one player versus the other players. The one player is moving along the board secretly so that you don't see exactly where they're at. They might be keeping track of it on a piece of paper that they're keeping hidden from everybody else. And you're trying to find them based on knowing that, you know, the type of movements that they can do. And they might leave clues throughout the game that kind of helps you find them. I don't typically play a lot of hidden movement games, Bob. Are there any that you like? Well, we've played like Specter Ops. Yep, that's the, one. You know, that's a pretty solid game. Mind Management's another new one that just came out. I played that. That one was kind of fun because the clues that you got were really puzzling. You could help figure that out. They're pretty decent. I wouldn't say they're like top tier for me. The one that I really want to play that I haven't had a chance to get to the table yet is Fury of Dracula. That's a popular one. You know, I really, I think part of it is just the theme on that one that I'm really attracted to. But yeah, for the most part, they're pretty, pretty fun, unique games, but not anything that I'm, you know, super pumped about. Polyomino games, however, I am pumped about for whatever reason. (laughs) So a polyomino game is a game where you have a variety of pieces that are going to be random shapes. They could be a T, they could be some sort of C pattern, they could be, you name it, it can make that kind of pattern. It's really hard to describe exactly what some of these things are. There might be a line with a couple pieces. Tetra style. Yes, Tetra style, except slightly more complicated. Yeah. So a game like Patchwork, where you're buying these pieces and then you're placing it on your board and trying to configure it in such a way to build up as much as you possibly can. Feast of Odin has this as part of it. Mm -hmm. Isle of Cats is a prime Mm -hmm. example, too. Mm -hmm. There's just something so satisfying about placing these pieces in the perfect way to complete a portion of your 
mm-hmm. little thing that's great. Yeah, they're very puzzly. They're a lot of fun. Trick taking. I think a lot of people are familiar with trick taking games. Uh, Euchre is our favorite one up in Michigan. Uh, we love that one. We've got spades. Um, some hobby ones are diamonds. Uh, the crew is one of my favorite trick taking games. That's a co-op trick taking. Kind of turns it on its head. The fox and the forest is a popular two-player trick taking, which yep. is worth checking out if you love trick taking games. I I love a lot of trick taking games. Just well, about any of them, I love. I mean, I think a lot of people grew up playing trick taking games in the house because it's a lot of times it's a deck of cards. Yeah, and so everyone, that, yeah, you know, spades, hearts, all that stuff. Yeah, one place person plays a card. Everyone has to follow suit. Whoever has the highest takes the trick. You usually win by getting the most tricks. That's a very typical way to play. Yep. Hand management style games are exactly that, where you have a hand of cards and you're managing those cards in such a way you're playing cards from your hand in order to do either like actions or trading them in for resources. It could be a variety of different things, but you have a hand of cards and you're managing those cards to continuously take turns round to round to round. Yeah, anything that you have to be careful with what to do with your hands, yeah. Yep. Pick up and deliver. Pretty much what it sounds like. You pick up an item, you go to another place, drop it off. Star Wars Outer Rim can be a pick up and deliver game. Uh, What's another? Maglove Metro, that's a newer one that's coming out. That's a pick up and deliver that just came out this past year. Merchants of Venus is like a very popular one. Mm-hmm. Sandbox style games are games in which you can do whatever you want. There's no restrictions as to what you can do. Two games that kind of come to mind. Number one is Western Legends, where you start on the board and it's just go. Do whatever you want. You want to go rob a train? Go rob a train. You want to fight some outlaws? Fight some outlaws. You want to be an outlaw? Be an outlaw. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, you can do whatever you want. It's a sandbox in which you can just, you go and you play. You do whatever you want to do. Tons and tons of options. Yep. Sleeping Gods is another example. You just have a, you can go do whatever it is you want to do. There's no specific path the game puts you on. You create your own path. Adventure style games. These are games where you kind of go out into this world and see what happens. These are often cooperative games where you're going out together on an adventure. Role player adventures is a prime example. A lot of times they're tied into campaign style games. Yeah. A lot of times there's like role playing elements to it, to an adventure style game where you're going out and discovering stuff and fighting baddies. Mm-hmm. That's what I did there. Those are Those are adventure style games for sure. Got any favorites, Bob? I definitely don't play Ooh, any of these games. Um, I keep thinking about role player adventures because my wife and I are getting ready to start that, and I'm real excited for that. So that's the only one that like comes to mind because of how excited I am to play that game. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna. I, I imagine that that's gonna be good. Everyone seems well. It could be like Meadow, right? Dang it! I don't want it to be <laughs> like Meadow. Uh, one of the last ones we're gonna talk about is Rondell style games. Rondell style games is probably one of my favorite styles where you have a circle or some sort of path, continuous path, which you're always moving forward and never moving back. Yeah, your character either goes around a circle and can collect resources along that circle, some kind of circle. Yeah. All right, that wraps up our board game jargon. I hope you learned a few things at least. If we missed any, let us know. Yeah, hit us up on Instagram, the Facebooks. That's all we have for today. Next week, we are going to talk about welcoming games and go over our top 10 welcoming games. Thanks for joining us and check us out on Instagram and Facebook. We are the Board Game Shenanigans Podcast. Bye, everyone. See you next week. See you next week.